Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. While you're turning there to Matthew chapter 6, uh, I'm going to tell you about a story about one of my favorite, one of my all-time favorite athletes, actually one of my all-time favorite Christian heroes. Uh, his name is Eric Liddell, or Eric Little, depending on how you pronounce his last name. But if you guys have seen the movie Chariots of Fire, you know who I'm talking about. But if you haven't heard, seen the movie Chariots of Fire, I'll just quickly tell you about his life. So Eric, uh, he grew up in a family... Uh, in China. So he was a Scotsman, uh, but he grew up in China because his parents were missionaries and they lived there. And by the time he came to high school, his parents sent him back to Scotland to go through schooling there. And while he was at school, he actually excelled at ath- you know, athletics. Uh, he excelled uh, particularly in running. And so he's a pretty fast guy. And he was so fast that he was actually known to be one of the fastest men in the world. And his, his race uh, that he excelled at was a 100-meter uh, race or sprint dash. And so if you guys aren't familiar with the Olympics or, or, or you know, track and field events, uh, the 100-meter race is, like, that's the thing that you get known as, like, the fastest man in the world. I don't know if you guys remember just a few Olympics ago, uh, Usain Bolt. I don't know if you guys remember him. You know, you know, he had the title, fastest man in the world. He's super fast. But anyways, that's where you get that title from, from that race, 100-meter sprint. And so Eric was going to represent... Great Britain, United Kingdom, and the 1924 Olympics uh, for that race. But as it turns out, for that race, uh, uh, you know, you have qualifying heats for the Olympics, and one of the qualifying heats was on a Sunday. And so he had a really strong biblical sense of the Sabbath, right? And so he decided, I cannot run, I cannot race on the Sabbath. Of course, Great Britain, you know, they're like, what the heck? You're, like, you're our fastest guy. You're the fastest man in the world, and you're not going to represent us on the Olympics. And so the British Olympic Committee, they, they got together and tried to convince Eric to run, to race. And so one of the things that they told him was like, hey, go to church on Sunday, worship God, then after service, run for the glory of God and for your country afterwards. And Eric would not budge one you know, you know, moment. Uh, for sure, he would not race on the Sabbath. And so what wound up happening in the movie gave the impression that this spanned over a couple of days where he had to, you know, figure out what to do. But it was actually over a few months. But what wound up happening was that Eric Liddell actually decided to, all right, if I can't race for the 100, then I'll race for the 400. All right. So um, even if you're not into sports, athletics, track and field event, you know, you already know that the 400 is four times as long, right? Okay. Four times as long as a sprint. And so for the 100... You know, there's not a lot of strategy there. You just, you just take off. You just go as fast as you can. It's not that long, and it's over. For the 400, that's like a middle distance race. And so there's a little bit of strategy behind it. You can't sprint the entire 400, right? You know, you're going to run out of energy. Somebody's going to catch up. So Eric had to change his strategy, train, and then for the actual morning of the race, all right, get this, everything was stacked against him, right? Because not only did he have to retrain his strategy for the 400, also, the day before, he ran for Great Britain at the 200, all right, and he got the bronze medal. And so he's already exhausted from the day before. Then he draws the outside lane, all right. So for the outside lane, 
So when you race, you know, it's kind of staggered because you go around in circles and not everybody has the same starting point. So it's a little bit staggered um, because, you know, you go further on the outside. And so he had drew the outside lane. So he's further up in, in the starting point, but you can't gauge how fast you run because you don't see anybody else. Everybody else is behind you. And so you can't really gauge who's in front of you, how to pick up speed and stuff like that. So everything was stacked up uh, against uh, Eric. And he got this message. He got this note that somebody put into his hands right before the race. And this is what the message said. It said, it says in the old book, him that honors me, I will honor. Wishing you the best of success always. So that really encouraged him that morning for the race. And so uh, uh, when he got down to a starting block uh, at the outside lane, the gun went off. As soon as the gun went off, he took off. He just started sprinting as fast as he could. And everybody's watching was like, he's going to run out of energy. <laughs> uh, he's not going to make it. Uh, what kind of strategy is this? But he kept on going as fast as he could around the entire track, and he came in first. He won the gold medal. Not only did he win the gold medal, but he set Olympic record, 47.2 seconds for the 400. So not only did he race that event, got the gold medal in the 400, got the bronze medal in the 200, but in uh, Great Britain, they also wanted to run by the 4x100s and the 4x400s, you know, in the relays. But those were held on Sundays as well, and he said that, I will not race those. And as a matter of fact, during the race, he was actually in church preaching uh, <laughs> while the Olympics were still going on. So that's Eric Liddell. We'll come back to his story later on in the sermon. But he's one of my all-time favorite athletes, all-time favorite Christian heroes. With that being said, we'll actually start reading the passage. Matthew chapter 6, I'll start at verse 25. And we'll go from 25 to 34. And it says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap. Or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need, need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now this passage that we just read is part of a long sermon by Jesus Christ himself, you know, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And this passage kind of starts off with the word, therefore. And of course you guys have always heard the cheeky phrase, you know, when you come across the word therefore, you got to figure out what is it therefore. All that really means is what was said previously sets the foundation for what is going to be said next. So, you know, passage, Matthew 6, you got 19 through 24, Jesus kind of talking about, do not set, your, set yourself up by 
committing your treasures here on this earth. And here in verse 24, it says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And if you have the old King James Version, it'll say probably God and mammon. Mammon is just a word used for either possessions or money. So you cannot serve both God and possessions or God and money. The first I kind of want to focus on here is no one can serve two masters. So the actual Greek being used here as far as serve is kind of like a verb form of the noun slave. So what it's literally saying is that you cannot be a slave to two masters. Now, throughout the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament, we kind of translate uh, the word doulos in Greek, servant, into most, most of the time as servant rather than slave. And, and there's kind of reason for that because the word slave, there's a lot of baggage throughout history that's associated with that, a lot of negative connotations. Of course, through the... Uh, uh, probably middle of the 15th century, all the way up to the towards the end of the 19th century, you got uh, uh, you know, transatlantic slavery, about 15 people brought over to the Americas, part of slavery, and of course that was you know, brutal, barbaric, and, and horrific. So we have that connotation when it comes to the word slave. But it really depends on the context, which is best, to use the word servant or slave. However, by using the word servant, we kind of lose certain forcefulness that the text kind of really tries to draw out. Part of that is when we read the word servant, we kind of think that these are kind of optional, right? You, you kind of choose to do something or not to do something. When you translate to the word slave, it's kind of like mandatory. It's, it's, it's more forceful. You don't really have an option. You don't really have a choice. Now, I'm not going to go through, you know, full comprehensive study of what did slavery mean in the first century Rome when this passage was written versus what we think of slavery now. But there is one slight similarity and one slight difference I want to kind of draw out. So similarity, if you're a slave in first century Rome, you didn't really have any rights, right? Uh, uh, you were property, you were owned. That kind of correlates with our idea of slavery. But then a difference is that first century Rome, your master provided everything for you, typically, wasn't always the case, but typically provided everything for you so that your sole for focus can be on what you were actually bought to do. You didn't have to worry about clothing, food, a, house, a roof over your head, all these things, because your master, when it, your sole purpose in life is to do this one or two or three things and do them to the best of your ability, not worry about everything else. So that's one similarity, one difference of what we think of slavery. But if you hear anything else that I hear that I say this morning, please understand and get this, because this is what I'm trying to drive home. You can trust God while in pursuit of his kingdom, because he is the all-knowing, all-loving, sovereign master of your life. I'll say it again. I'll probably say it throughout this sermon. But you can trust God while in pursuit of his kingdom, because he is the all-knowing, all-loving, and sovereign master of your life. Now, what Jesus is kind of getting to and getting at here uh, when he says, no one can be a slave to two masters, he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. What Jesus is trying to get here is at least two things. The first thing is that for all of us, every single person, 
whether you're a Christian or you're not, all of us are a slave to something or someone. We all have a master, every single human being. The second thing that Jesus Christ is getting at is that whoever that master is, which we all have, we all have a master, we will be totally and fully committed to that master. So those are two things that Jesus is really drawing out here. And, and actually, the Apostle Paul says something very similar. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, many of us, definitely in popular culture, many of us probably equate freedom to being able to do whatever you want, right? That is freedom, right? The ability to do whatever you want. But, but I'll kind of just throw it at you that that, that definition of freedom is actually tyranny and oppression. I just take, for example, you know, let's say if you're stronger, smarter, faster, wiser than somebody else, right? And you uh, want to be able to do whatever you want to do. Have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. You might be able to take from others or do whatever you want at the expense of someone else. And so while you might have that freedom, somebody else might not feel free, right? There's, there's kind of conflicting things there. Especially if you have power. You're going to be able to do what you want, probably at the expense of others. So, so let me just give another definition of freedom that's really uh, brought forth in the Bible and Scripture. Freedom involves two things. One, it involves our desires. It's desiring what we should, what we ought, and then being able to act on those desires. So two things are at play there. It's actually... Freedom is a desire of what, desiring what we should, what we ought, and then acting on those desires. That is true freedom. And actually, the only way we can change our desires is through Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's powerful enough, strong enough to change our desires. I mean, that's kind of what we call salvation along with sanctification. He's changing us, giving us a new heart, a new passion for himself, not a passion for our own desires, for sin, for things that harm us and harm others. So the only way that you can actually have freedom, have the right desires, is to be a slave of Jesus Christ, to have your new master as Jesus Christ and not sin. Because of the sovereign God we have in this earth, Jesus Christ, he actually here commands you, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about all these other things that feed your mind, that, you know, that you worry about, what you need, clothing, food, shelter, all that, those things. God actually knows that you need that. And actually, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Um, in the Greek, first, protos, 
that word is actually not meant to be a sequential thing, like one, two, three, seek ye first, number one, the kingdom of God. But first here actually means of all importance, <laughs> the greatest value, most importance, seek ye first the kingdom of God, because that's the thing that matters most. That's what always comes first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and God will take care of all these other things in your life. And the, the love of God is actually shown a lot in this passage, right? Because God says, actually know what you need on a moment-by-moment, daily, day-by-day basis. I know what you need. You don't need to tell me, although you should tell me through prayer. But I know what's going on in your life. I know what you need. I'll, I'll take care of it. So you actually see the love of God here. So the question is, why do we, what, why do I just trust God so much when it comes to all these other things? Why do we get anxious when we're not in control of things in life? Why? Why do I do it? I, I, it's, it's not just couple of us here in this room, it's probably all of us at some point in our lives get anxious, get worried that we're not in control of things, that things aren't really working out the way we thought they would. So I'm going to be speaking to Christians here, those of you who have already placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, right? Number one, why do we sometimes distrust God so much? Well, to be honest, we, we trust ourselves more than God, right? We trust our own, own ability. Thank God. Yeah, we might, you know, say with our words that God is sovereign, he's all-powerful, he's all-loving, all-knowing, but really, I'm on the ground level. I know what's going on. God, God is a little out of touch. I know what's going on. I need to trust myself. You know, we kind of view God as very, like, out of touch, incapable, doesn't really know what's going on. We actually see this in a lot of narrative stories of the Bible, all right? Uh, uh, it's, I love stories, I love narratives because they're able to reveal truth in a way that other mediums can't but then also it's able to uh, reveal our own brokenness, our own sinfulness so two great stories, I mean you can just flip through the, you know, from Genesis to Revelation to find many stories, but there's two quick ones that pop to mind, one is with Abram and Sarai All right, this is before their names were changed to Abram and, and Sarah, but Genesis chapter 15 God comes to Abraham in a very powerful, dramatic way, right? A very personal way. And he makes a promise to Abraham. At this point, Abram and Sarah, they don't have a, um, any offspring, right? They don't have any kids. And God makes a promise to them that they all have so many kids. It'll be innumerable. Count the you know, stars in the sky, the sand, uh, and that won't even count up to how many children you'll have. Of course, that's you know, part of a spiritual blessing. But it's what it points to a very real progeny. You know, they're going to have kids. So that's Genesis chapter 15. You, you just flip the page, Genesis chapter 16, what, what story do you get? Right? Genesis chapter 16, you get uh, uh, Sarah and Hagar, right? Hagar. If you don't know the story, just real, give it a real quick uh, synopsis. So we don't really know how much time has passed between Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 16. But at some point, it... Abram and Sarah, they're like, we don't have a kid yet. I know God made his promise, but it's not really working out. We don't have a kid yet. So we have this great idea. All right. 
we have this servant, this slave, Hagar. Abram, how about you sleep with her, get a kid through her, and then we'll claim that as our kid. That's our grand scheme, that's our grand plan to have a kid. Of course, that's not God's plan. But what's really going on over here? After a great promise by God, a patriot or, or a faith, Abraham, Abraham, he's like, all right, we'll, we'll come up with a different scheme, a different way to bring about God's promise. What they're really saying is that, hey, I don't trust God in a way that he'll bring things about. I, I, I think I know what's going on here. I think I can figure things out. Of course, one of the more famous stories is with, you know, Adam and Eve, right? Genesis chapter 3, you know, Adam and Eve, long story short, I know you've heard this story many times before, but they just look at this fruit and they're like, all right, it's, it's pleasing to the eyes. It looks appetizing. It, it looks useful. You know, although the entire time Satan just uses this as a scheme that you can be better than God himself. All you need to do is just eat, eat of this fruit. But they look at the fruit, they say, it actually looks pretty good. It looks useful. What was God thinking about keeping us away from this fruit? And so they decided to eat of it. So what am I trying to get at? Many times we trust ourselves, our own understanding, our, our own way to figure things out rather than God. This comes with dating, marriage, career choices, living situations, tithing, or just money in general. Every single life decision is almost like, all right, God, I know what you said, not, but really, I, I kind of think it's this way. You know, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, kind of probably hear this a lot in, in Christian circles, is a Proverbs 3 through 5, you know, uh, 3, 5 through 7. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Flee from sin. I forget the last part. Just flee from sin. Right? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Trust God. Trust God in all things. Flee from sin. It's always painful. Always horrible. So number one, we kind of trust ourselves more than God. But then number two, we don't really trust God with the desires of our own heart. I'm using the word trust a lot because trust the same thing as faith, right? Trust and faith, we can use them interchangeably. But we don't really trust God with the desires of our heart. Those, those passions, those deep desires that we want to fulfill out of life, we want to get out of life, oh man, if I give them to God, he'll, he'll kind of ruin them. He'll kind of take them away. He'll replace it with something worse, you know? Come on, I, I don't really trust you with what I want out of life, the, the desires I want to fulfill. I don't trust you, God. So back to Eric Liddell, right? So after he wins the Olympic gold medal, he uh, finishes college, and he goes overseas to China to be a missionary. While he's there overseas, he's a serving God. He actually meets his wife uh, uh, while there because her and her family is a serving God as missionaries in China. They actually get married. They have three kids. But while they're serving in China, things kind of get pretty intense, uh, pretty rough. And so this is right before World War II. And there's tension between China and Japan. Japan eventually invades China. And uh, what uh, the Liddells, what Eric decides to do is, all right, I'll send my wife 
and kids over to, over to Canada, because that's where uh, his wife is from, Canada. And you guys will be safe, and I'll actually stay here and serve until things get so bad, then I'll come back and join you guys. So that's what they decide to do. So Eric stays in China, he continues to serve while uh, the Japanese have invaded China. Um, but things get pretty bad pretty quickly, and he's not able to leave. And actually, what winds up happening is that he gets put into a, a, a internment camp right uh, there in China. So he serves in the internment camp. He really kind of boosts up people's spirits. He's really involved with the youth there uh, in the camp. He's, uh, you know, of course, still running, still pretty fast, uh, still racing. He's uh, doing other activities, playing soccer. He's uh, uh, praying with people, doing all these things. And then all of a sudden, he has like a mental breakdown. Actually. You know, some people say that he wound up doing too much to try to encourage people. He has a mental breakdown, and then he actually dies. He, he died about five months before the prison camp was liberated. And so I know I mentioned that, you know, Eric had three kids, three girls, actually. But actually, he only met two of them. Because when he sent his wife over to Canada, his wife was pregnant. So he's, he only met two of his little girls. So... Where, where was God in all of this? <laughs> no. Where was God? Didn't God know the desires of his heart? Didn't God know the desires of his wife's heart, his kids? This is the guy who won the Olympic gold medal after saying to the world, I will respect the Sabbath. I will not race on Sunday. And then he goes over to China to serve God for the rest of his life and he dies at a young age, relatively young age. Where was God in all of this? Well, remember I said the main point, you can trust God on the pursuit of his kingdom because he's the all-knowing, loving, sovereign master of your life. Now these answers I'm about to give, if you don't already call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, then, you know, these answers can probably rub you the wrong way. You know, let's say, what the heck? That, that doesn't make up for all the missed life and missed time that Eric had. God was not a part of that. But if you do call yourself a follower of Christ, a believer, these words will actually encourage you, encourages me in our walk together and loving each other and loving God. So the first answer is this. God will neglect your desires. God will neglect those desires that you have. Because he'll actually change those desires that you have. He'll make them true. He'll make them right. He'll make them righteous. Now, any Christian, you know, whether you've been a Christian for a few days or a number of years, you will actually kind of see this in your life. You know, we have a big word for this, you know, sanctification. What a process, you'll start to notice that those things that you used to desire out of life, sin, pleasures, or good things, doesn't matter what it is, that God puts a new desire, passion, love in your life that wasn't there before. It's, it's very interesting to watch that process, that growth over your walk with God. It'll actually change those desires. The more you pursue God, the more he'll change those desires. See, sanctification is kind of like two-part. 
but God is completely sovereign and in control of you know salvation. Sanctification is kind of a two-part thing where we work alongside of God, not only mortifying, killing, destroying sin in our lives, but then actually uh, growing to have a more desire for God himself. So the more we look at Jesus in his way, the more beautiful he becomes. That's something that we participate in, but it's also something that God does in us. He actually changes our desires, changes our hearts, changes our eyes toward him. And the second is this. The first is that God will neglect your desires because he'll actually change those desires. And by the way, when I say change your desires, uh, you're going to actually enjoy that process. It's not like, oh my goodness, I, I'm losing out on X. It's being replaced by A. Now you'll actually start loving A and hating X. Hating sin, loving God. It's not something that's against your will. Not only does the God do that, but then also, whatever we give up for the sake of Christ does not compare, does not even come close to Christ himself or his rewards. It's not even comparable. It could be sin, it could be pleasure, it could be dreams, it could be comfort, it could be good things, it could be blessings. Right? Don't always think that, you know, you know, all this bad stuff. But it'd be the good stuff, the bad stuff we want out of life. None of those things compare to Christ himself and his blessings and his rewards. You know what? Uh, I'll, I'll let Jesus speak to this point. In Matthew 19, chapter 19, um, just a real quick story. Uh, there's this rich guy, right? He comes up to Jesus and he says that, you know, what can I do to eternal to gain eternal life? Jesus says, you know, you know sell that all the all that you have and follow me. And the rich guy turns around and says, you know, I don't know if I can sell all that I have. That's 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 painful, hurtful to me. So he turns around and then moves away from Jesus. And so his disciples come up to Jesus. They're like, those are kind of harsh words to this guy. I mean, I mean, I mean he kind of served you with all his life. And then he gave a kind of tall order for the guy, you know, sell all that you have to follow you. Um, what's, what's up with that, Jesus? And, then, and Peter kind of speaks up, saying that we've actually given up all that we have to follow you. And, and this is what Jesus says. Anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many of you who are first will be last and the first and the last first. So what is Jesus getting at here? He's saying, whatever you give up for my name's sake, friends, family, possessions, dreams, comforts, whatever the case may be, whatever you give up for my name's sake, you'll receive me. And not only me, hundredfold in the life to come. See, the tricky thing about life is that we kind of view God as something as less than. You know, whatever we can get out of this life probably means more to us. brings more happiness and joy than, than the true creator. The one who created all things. The one who is sovereign perfectly loving. Somehow we kind of have this mental gymnastics, and by the way, I'm not saying you guys saying me as well, right? I, I do this so many times. I, I actually love 
I prefer the things I can get out of this world or out of this life or even gifts from God, blessings from God, more than actual the gift giver, right? You're saying I am Jesus Christ? Okay, all right. And like, 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 what more can you add to the equation? So sometimes we have a very small view on God and the blessing that he is. And speaking of anxiety and worry about things about this life, uh, in other words, from Jesus Christ, before he went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him angels from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Man, what is, what is going on here? Here's, here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And he's here, here kind of praying to his father, kind of pleading with his father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through this. But nevertheless, your will be done and not mine. And it gets so bad to the point during his prayer that he's actually sweating like great drops of blood, right? And angels are coming out and ministering to him. I, I mean, that's pretty intense. I've, I've never been in a situation like that. And Lord willing, I never will be. But, but like, what is going on here? Please understand that, you know, crucifixion is, is a pretty brutal thing going on. It's, it was made to be torturous, extremely painful by the Romans. Actually, thousands of people have been crucified before. And in some sense, Jesus Christ is just one of thousands. And so, is he really agonizing about that painful, torturous death? As painful as no, no, he's not. He's about to experience a full wrath of God on our behalf. He's about to experience the full wrath of God for sin. That punishment that you and I should have taken for choosing sin over God, for choosing our way instead of his, for thinking we can figure things out versus what God says. And instead, Jesus Christ stuck in our place to take that punishment for us so we will not have to, so that we can have a perfect and full and fulfilling relationship with God and enjoy his blessings not only in this life, but more so in the next life to come. That is what Jesus here is expressing. His commitment to the Father. That same commitment that we, as followers of Christ, express. So in closing, let me say this prayer. Father God, we have not known thee as we ought, nor learned thy wisdom, grace, and power. The things of earth have filled our thought, and trifles of the passing hour. Lord, give us light, thy truth to see, and make us wise in knowing thee. Amen.